The man was rather old, weathered face, broad-shouldered, obviously living a difficult life, but without complaint. He had a way about him, just a calmness, a sureness. It wasn't long to be around him before you would hear him begin to talk about the one he loved the most. Oh, he hadn't seen him now for years, not eye to eye, not face to face. But in the hard times, he closed his eyes. He began to pray. And when you were watching it, it was almost like he was talking to a friend. Not a trivial conversation, nothing light about it. There was a confidence in this relationship that had been pressed out over years of trial, suffering, failure, success. He was in a big city, you know, Rome's a big place, several million people. He was known, pretty well known, not only by common people on the street, but all the way to the house of the emperor. Strange place for a fisherman to be. Living in a big city, thousands of miles from the Sea of Galilee. But it was where God had put him. And he had determined years ago that wherever God placed him, That's where he would be. And wherever he was, he would serve before he was served. He would humbly bow rather than boast. His one aim in life, to make his master known. And in some ways, this day is no different than the days he had been through for years now. I mean, going about his daily work. Preaching, teaching, discipling, sacrificing. But the rumor had begun to spread. Nero's bloodthirsty minions had begun to move through the streets again. For whatever reason they could charge up, they were dragging people off to be killed. And there was a public enemy, number one, if you want to call it that, for Nero. And it was Peter. Why? Well, maybe it was because he was successful. You see, it wasn't long being around him that you wanted to be around him again and again. And he had this contagious ability to inspire people to live for his master. The word came to the home where they were praying. The authorities were closing in, a warrant for his arrest. And the people began to beg Peter, leave. It's not too late. You can leave. He wasn't moved at first. I mean, you've got to realize this guy's been around the block a few times. And in his heart, it was kind of felt good that maybe his call had come. Maybe he would die. You see, it was just a little earlier that his wife had been arrested. 
led off to be crucified. Peter had mourned her, but more than anything, he had encouraged her. As they led her through the street to her place of crucifixion, his friends all tell us, he just simply repeated, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Until she drew her last breath, her faithful husband That weathered fisherman, broad-shouldered, older now, wiser now, humbler now, reminded her, remember the Lord. Maybe this was his day. A little anticipation was building in his heart. But after some convincing, Peter decided maybe he did need to leave. He left the house, walked towards the gates of the city, not in fear, but resolute, knowing that if he was arrested, it meant to be with the Lord. And if he escaped, it meant more labor on Christ's behalf. We kind of get this story from his friends that was passed down to us through great historians. Eusebius says that when Peter reached the gates of the city. Those who were with him saw him fall to knees and cry out, Lord, where are you going? And his Lord said, I'm going to Rome that I might be crucified again. On hearing this, he knew. It's time to go home. About face, back to the city, arrested within a few hours, sentenced to death. The death of a cross. Public humiliation. Except this time, the man being crucified was Peter. Simon Peter. Son of Jonah. The weak one who had become a rock. And to show his faithfulness to his Lord, he refused to hang on that cross like his Lord, but rather decided and asked to be hung upside down. And his statement was, according to those who were around in that day, it was far from him to be honored to die in the same manner as his Lord. How does a man go from not being able to tell the servant girl, maybe 12, 13 years old, in the courtyard of the high priest, yeah, I know Jesus. How does a man go from looking at a little girl in fear and denying that he knows anything about the Lord, even with swearing, I don't know him. I've never seen him. How does he go from there to upside down on a cross? I think it was from a simple event recorded for us in John 21 when Christ asked him, Do you love me? 
That might sound strange to you. It might sound strange to me. But it's this event in John 21 that makes Peter. It doesn't break him. The confrontation with Christ face to face on the beach over breakfast installs him back to full strength. And we have it. Let's read that story. John 21. Last week we covered the beginning verses. And then this center, this centerpiece as I call it. John 21 is an epilogue. John 1 is a prologue. If you're a reader, you know what that means. The prologue spells out in, uh, in short form what the argument of the book will be. The epilogue summarizes again the argument of the book and closes it, usually powerfully. That's what John's doing in John 21. He's closing the book powerfully. He's given the resolution of the book in John 20. He gave that to us. John 20, verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. End of book. Beginning of epilogue. Summary. New story. Hook. To get you to think about the application of believing in Jesus Christ. And here we have it. Verse 15 is the encounter I'm speaking about. The questioning of Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we're not sure what these are in, real, in reality. There's no connection in the original language. Maybe he's asking, do you love me more than these other disciples? That's possible. Maybe he's saying, do you love me more than these things? Speaking about the fish and the nets and the boats and the Sea of Galilee. I tend to believe he's asking, do you love me more than these disciples? These other men. Do you love me more than them? And I get that because in John 13, he claims to love him more than anybody else. Even if everyone else leaves you, Lord, I will not leave you. He made a big boast that night in the upper room, didn't he? And he didn't follow through on it when the time came. And now Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these, Peter? Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had 
been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and the sisters that the, this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. My, my contention, my belief is that we get the Peter prior to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the bold, young, athletic, successful businessman, proud, then we get the broken Peter. The Peter who leaves the court courtyard crying, weeping. Who goes off to console himself with his tears. And then in Acts, we pick up a proud, a, a, I mean not a proud, but a bold Peter. A Peter who's willing to preach on the steps of Jerusalem to thousands a Peter who goes on to be a leader of the church. Not just in Jerusalem, but later in his life even in Rome. A Peter who is willing to die. And I believe we get that Peter past Pentecost from John 21. From what Jesus did in John 21. When he asked, do you love me? Now, we've wrongly, some have, focused on the wording. We talked about that a little last week. The wording, Jesus asking, do you agapeo me? And Peter responding, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Agape meaning higher form of love, a godlike love, according to some. And then phileo meaning a brotherly love, an affectionate love. Like a man has for another man. But I told you last week, and I say it again, I think that's absolutely wrong. I think that's to miss the whole point of John 21, 15. Through 17 and the questioning of Jesus and Peter. Why? Well, one, because there's no agreement about what those words mean. Some say agape is a godlike love, yet we have good evidence from the ancient writers that it was used of a cerebral, mind-focused love, not a heart-level affectionate love. A very cold relationship from agape sometimes comes out in the writings. Phileo, on the other hand, is very passionate. Very, very emotional, engaging the heart and soul and mind of the one who professes this. And we're even told by John earlier in his gospel that God loves us with a phileo love. And that we are to love him that way. And so the usage is not as clear as some might make an argument to build sermons. I told Dave in studying this text, it preaches good. Everything that preaches good isn't right. It makes for good fodder for preaching sometimes, but it's not necessarily true to the text. And I don't think this is true to the text. Well, then what is being emphasized in this questioning? 
What is being emphasized? One is the failure of Peter. You think it's a coincidence he asked him three times? Do you love me? How many times did Peter deny him? Three times. You think it's a coincidence that he focuses on action in tying it with love? Notice it in the text. What does he tell him? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Yes, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Sometimes we get caught on the trivial and miss the big. The big picture is one, I believe, that Peter's being installed again. Comforted. Brought back as a leader. Publicly by Christ. He had denied Christ. Everyone knew it. And so if he's going to lead the church, he needs Jesus not just to tell him, but to openly say, you are my man for the job, Peter. You're my man. Okay? He needs that assurance. He needs it and the community of Christians need it. But secondly, notice the tie between love and action. Do you see it? Look in the text. Peter, do you love me? He didn't ask Peter, do you want to serve me? He didn't ask Peter, uh, do you have something you'd like, some job you'd like to perform, some title you'd like to receive? He asked, do you love me? But then when Peter says he loves, what does Jesus immediately tell him? To show his love. How will he show his love? How will he show his love? Peter, if you really love me, then you will what? You will take care of and shepherd my people. The old man in Rome was shepherding God's people. Under the shepherding of the head shepherd, he was a shepherd of the people. Listen, some of you have boasted about your love for Jesus and you wouldn't walk across the street for your neighbor. Some of you have boasted about your love for Christ and yet you would rather somebody die and not know Him than to put your reputation on the line. Some of you like to talk about loving Jesus and talk about the Gospel. And you have never shown the love with which you speak. And so Jesus would say, Do you love me? This morning, I think, He's asking you in your heart, Do you love me? And when you say yes, His answer will be just like it was to Peter then do the shepherding of my people. Love your brother. I don't know about you, but it's, it's very convicting to think about, do I love Jesus? Peter was established here. That's what made the difference. Christ established him as an apostle, as a rock, as a leader. But he also told Peter that love is active. Love is not in word only, but in deed. And so he gives him the sheep. Maybe we lose the now, maybe we are losing in our day the understanding of what a shepherd is. Some would say we need to stop talking about shepherds because people won't live on farms anymore. 
But I think when you talk, stop talking about shepherds, you stop talking about the role that God has given. You can't make a pastor a CEO and expect to get something besides the business. Jesus isn't in business. Not to slam you business guys. I love you. Jesus wasn't a businessman. Jesus was a shepherd. And he called his men to be shepherds. And it's very important. What do we see in his shepherding task? What do we see but love? That's why I'm saying love is active. Look at the text. Look at it. How will the sheep eat? Peter will feed them. Peter will feed them. How will the sheep stay out of the water and not drown? How will the sheep not fall off cliffs and die? How will the sheep get rid of the infections in their ears and eyes? Peter will tend them. He'll take care of them with tender affection. How will the little nursing lambs grow to be full-grown sheep? Again, he will feed the lambs. Peter will. So, when God expresses, or when we express a love for Christ... We must also understand that love is an action. Love is an action. So we could ask, do you feed the sheep in your life? Fathers in this congregation, men of your house, are you feeding your little ones the Word of God? Are you praying over them? Because see, when Jesus says, do you love me? I think He would say, Feed your children. Tend to your children. Men, are you putting up walls and barriers around your home of protection spiritually? Are you just letting whatever come in the home that can come in? Jesus would say, do you love me? And when you said yes, he would say, tend them, protect them, hedge them. In our day, get off the couch, turn the TV off, And actually love your children in Christ. Is that clear enough? I'm not fussing. I'm just saying from the text. It is is not acceptable to say I love Jesus and do nothing. You don't love him. You want to be Peter dying upside down on the cross like some noble man? You've got to learn to feed sheep before you can die like that. This isn't some grandiose story. This isn't some play on words. This is a real life event. And I've, I would say that Jesus does with us what he does with Peter. And some of you out here, dads, I'm speaking to you today a lot, not to let the moms off the hook. But some of you dads are so caught up I can get caught up in the world around us and we do it for a good cause don't we men I got to be the provider I got to be the strong stability of my family so therefore I don't sit down with my child and the word of God don't have time for that. Somebody else will have to do that. Listen. As a Christian man in your home, 
Your wife may be waiting for you to show her the love that you say you have. Not by a touch or a caress or a gift, but by an open Bible. Not preaching and lecturing, but reading and learning and loving and praying. Why in Rome was there great mourning? We're told that they mourned in the streets and wailed openly when Peter was killed. Because he hadn't done a lot of dictating. He had done a lot of feeding and a lot of tending. And so I would say he established Peter and I would say he taught Peter what real love is. What real love is. And listen... You say, well, I'm busy, Carlton. I work 65, 70 hours a week. I know the feeling. But what I'm talking about is not a programmatic two hours a day. I'm talking about as you go. Using life as your classroom with your child. I'm talking about over the dinner table. Making a point to sit down, open God's Word, and just read it. And talk with the children. I'm not talking about being a seminary grad that can argue the points of theology. I'm talking about being a real man of God with your children and your wife. You know, Peter not only was established and not only did he learn how to to love and what love is, but Peter actually became a martyr, I believe, on this day. He became a martyr on this day. Long before he was upside down on a cross in Rome, he had determined he would die. For his Lord. We have the awful habit, and I say that because we have the awful habit of thinking, well, if persecution ever comes here, then I'll stand up for Jesus. No. No, if you're not feeding the sheep and tending the sheep and feeding the lambs, when the day comes from persecution, you won't stand then either. You will fail. You're not strong enough in your own will. Here Peter is. Answering the questions of his Lord, learning about love, and then Jesus applies the cost of discipleship. And this is where I want to end the message this morning, is the cost of real discipleship. You've been established in Christ. He has approved of you. Did you know that? God has approved of you. Because He took your sin and placed it on Christ. He took Christ's righteousness. He placed it on you. And you are approved. You are accepted. You are adopted in the very family of the living God. That's you this morning. So you're established like Peter was established. God has taught us love the same way He taught Peter love. And now I think He would teach us the cost of discipleship. Truly, truly, I say to you in the text... Verse 18, when you were young, you were brash, you were bold, you were strong, you were proud. That's what it means you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. That's what it means. You were a man's man, Peter. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and they'll take you where you don't want to go. Let me just make way of application here for you, for me, for tomorrow, for the days to come. We don't need more macho men. 
We don't need more men who are self-assured, who've looked down deep and found the good in them. We don't need that. That's who Peter was prior to the events in this chapter. He's tough, brash, outspoken. He was a leader. No, he was a failure. And when the time of life came on him in the garden that day, in the courtyard, around with that little 12-year-old girl, he wasn't so macho anymore. I'll die with you even if they all leave you. Went away in the face of a 12-year-old girl. Because he was self-assured, not assured of Christ. Not standing in the gospel fully. Not applying it in his life. We don't need more macho men. We don't need more tough guys. We need more servants. We need more humble, broken, repentant, resolved men of God. I don't know a Christian woman anywhere that can't follow that. I don't know any child who won't look in the face of that father with affection and say, He's my dad. What am I saying? There's a cost to discipleship, and Jesus gives it to Peter. It's going to cost you everything, Peter. Your image, your livelihood, your life. It's not going to cost you when you get to Rome. It's going to cost you right now. If you follow me, notice the charge at the end of the text. What's the charge? Follow me. What did he tell him when he called him from the banks of the fishing hole he was at? back at the beginning of his walk with Jesus. What did he say when he came on the mending their nets with their father in the boat? Follow me. He's recommissioning him. He's recalling him. Follow me. And he's saying what it's going to cost you is everything. So do you love Jesus? If the answer is yes then the only action to take is to be like Him. To follow Him. Now, I want to talk you out of it. Because I'm not sure we've counted the cost. You're here this morning, you're struggling, personally, your marriage is in shambles. And you're hearing this message and you're thinking, that's the solution. If I follow Jesus closer, my marriage will be good. No, you might get a divorce. Your spouse might hate you more when it's over than they did before. You can't follow Jesus because you want your wife or your husband. You say, well, I'm kind of in a rough spot in my business. Things are bad. Economy's down. If I'll just follow Jesus, things will get better. No, no. There may be a foreclosure sign on the end of your business. My kids won't get sick. Yeah, they will. They'll die. They still will die. No different. My retirement might grow. No, you might lose all your retirement. Willingly. You might go empty your 401k and support a missionary the rest of his life. And you work till you die. If you come to Christ. 
If that's what it takes to tend the sheep, if that's what it takes to feed the lambs, that's what you're going to be willing to do because you're going to follow it. The cost of discipleship is to count the cost. And what is the cost? It is all of you. Every ounce of you. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, it's everything. And you're going to ask like Peter, what about that guy, God? And he's going to say the same thing to you, he said to Peter. What does it matter if it's my desire for that man to live until I come a second time? You follow me. I'm not asking you to join a success movement. I'm not asking you to come get on Jesus' team because he's the hero that will make your life better. I'm saying you have the choice today, right now, to say, I've counted the cost. I'm dead. And I want Christ and nothing else. I want Christ. He who gives up his life gains it. That's what Jesus said. Don't you know that rang in Peter's ear when he heard this story of dying? Jesus had already told them, it's going to cost you everything. You say, well, I'm not ready to give that. Then don't come. I've read this billboard, and if you go to this church and you're visiting, I'm not bashing, but I've read this billboard on several churches in this county. And what I want to do is wreck my car into it. That's not an exaggeration. There are going to be more people in hell, I think, with this kind of theology than any other theology. Give Jesus a try. If you don't like it, the devil will always take you back. And what I'm telling you is if that's your attitude, don't come. Don't come. The Lord's not a beggar. He doesn't have to have you as if you're the all-star being added to the team. He didn't say, Peter, come give this martyrdom a try. And if it doesn't work out for you, go back to fishing. He said, give up fishing. Give up your family. Give up your wealth. Give up your reputation. Give up everything and follow me. What about that guy? I don't care about that guy. I'm telling you, follow me. He's telling you the same. You can't come one foot in, one foot out. I'll give it a try and then I'll go back if I don't like it. You can't come that way. The door's not open in those regards. It's in a trial period for a few months. What I'm telling you is count the cost. How much will it take to build that tower? How much will it take to wage that war? When you find the source is... Everything, when you add it all up and say, it's everything, then you must decide, will I go build it? Will I wage the war? Or will I stay here and keep my wealth? He is no fool. He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the call of Christ. From John 21, that's it. It's not some play on words with love. It's are you counting the cost 
Are you dying to everything? Are you going to follow me? What about that guy? It doesn't matter about that guy. I'm talking to you. Follow me. Well, how does it look in our culture? It looks radical. It looks radical. It looks like businessmen who do their business with kingdom principles. I'd like to talk to you about that. If you're interested. It looks like husbands and wives living selfless, sacrificial daily lives so that the other might live. Not claiming rights, but serving every day. It looks like parents who aren't worshiping their children, but are teaching their children to worship the living God. That's what it looks like. Some of you can't go for Christ because you're too busy going for your children. You can't come to Jesus like that. You cannot. And I'm afraid billboards like Try Jesus, the devil will take you back. It's just sending people to hell. And so that's the call this morning. Count the cost. I'm not playing games. Jesus isn't playing games. It's going to cost you everything you love dearly. Everything. And there's no punchline. I don't want to give a punchline. There are, but I don't want to give it to you. But I think you auto, we automatically in America hear the punchline of, and you'll gain back a hundredfold in this life and the next. We, we hear that and we just forget the sacrifice. So there's the punchline underneath. But you can't come to Christ for the punchline. You come to Jesus for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end...